The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Renowned writer Yuval Noah Harari, author of Sapiens and Homo Deus, is out with a new book called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. In it, he raises real concerns about artificial intelligence and the algorithms that power it, and about the people who control all our data. He touches on nationalism and how truth and power are necessarily incompatible. And he stresses the need for all of us to know who we are before the algorithms tell us. This conversation was originally recorded before a packed house at the 6th and I Synagogue here in Washington on September 6th and has been edited for content and clarity. So is this conception you get every time around the world? Ah, uh, sometimes. Applause. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Depends well, where. Well, Yuval, thank you very much for being here um, for your, la- your, your latest book, I, I read all of it, and people who have seen me do this before, I've underlined, I've taken notes, I've got page numbers, so be ready. <laughs> I think the, the, the perfect way to start off this conversation is to read um, a, a paragraph, it, admittedly it's in the introduction, page um, XVI or 16. Um, and this is, I think, would be a great way to, to, to kick this off. You write, so where are we heading? This question is particularly poignant because liberalism is losing credibility exactly when the twin revolutions in information technology and biotechnology confront us with the biggest challenges our species has ever encountered. The merger of infotech and biotech might soon push billions of humans out of the job market and undermine both liberty and equality. Big data algorithms might create dict- digital dictatorships in which all power is concentrated in the hands of a tiny elite, while most people suffer not from exploitation, but from something far worse, irrelevance. That happy paragraph is basically <laughs> um, a, a good way, a, a perfect introduction into the book. This mer- talk more about this merger of information technology and biotechnology and why at once is it extremely exciting but also extremely scary? Well, a good place to start is with the question, do I know myself? Do I really understand myself? And um, many people would say yes. And in that case, they have nothing to fear. But because the AI will not make much of a difference to them, it can't know know them better than they know themselves. But these people are probably mistaken. Very few people actually understand themselves. Very few people can really say, yes, I know myself. I understand my mind. I understand my desires, my thoughts, where they are coming from. Um, I think that too many people suffer from a lack of curiosity about themselves. And the AI revolution, or really the merger of biotech and infotech, is at the same time both accelerating and frightening. Because we are about to create, we are creating an external system which is hacking us, which which is getting to know us far better than we know ourselves. Which on the one hand is accelerating, because you can start understanding yourself, you can start understanding your brain, your body, your mind, your life choices, your desires, your thoughts, in ways which were previously unimaginable. But at the same time, this kind of knowledge will be accessible not just to you, Mm -hmm. but to some external systems. And depending on the political choices we, we make, this kind of understanding might be accessible not to you at all, only to the external systems. And to think what it means to live in a world when somebody else, uh, an external system, understands my innermost desires and fears and hopes much better than I understand them, this is a very frightening scenario. 
And we're already living in it. I mean, in, in reading the book, I mean, we, we are feeding data to these big companies and into these algorithms. As I was reading, I kept thinking about um, how I go to Google Play and I will hit uh, start radio. And then all of these songs, I pick a particular song that I really love, start radio, and then all these other songs come on that I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's great. Or, oh, I remember that song. I love that song. And that's this algorithm that's learning me, that's understanding me. All of my choices are being sucked up by this thing. But this is just, you know, this is just the, the beginning, just the tip of the iceberg, because at present, these algorithms are ex still extremely primitive. They are in their infancy, especially because they don't go beneath your skin. They are still based on the choices you make outside, on you pushing buttons and pointing at things and swiping your credit card and, 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 and doing likes and dislikes on, on a screen. Um, and it gathers a lot of data from that, but it's all surface. The really big change will come when it goes underneath the skin. When the same algorithm, with the use of biometric sensors of the, of the type which are already beginning to see on more and more wrists and fingers and will eventually be inside our bodies, when the same algorithm that chooses music for you can, in real time, monitor what happens to your blood pressure, to your uh, heartbeat, to your brain activity as you listen to each song. Um, and all the data is not going to disappear. It's mm -hmm. being accumulated. And within quite a short time, this algorithm can understand your, your deepest emotions much better than any other person and much better than yourself. And, you know, it, it, it's good maybe to start by talking about art and not economics or politics. Mm -hmm. A very common understanding of art in the modern age, it's di it was different in previous ages, but at least in the modern age in the West, it's commonly believed that art is all about human emotions. Mm -hmm. It's about inspiring human emotions. Maybe joy, maybe sadness, maybe anger, maybe fear, but art is about the human mind and human emotions. So really, all artists play on the same instruments, whether it's musicians, or whether it's painters, or whether it's TV producers. The instrument everybody's playing on is the human biochemical system, mm -hmm. is the human emotional system. And if somebody can hack that, they will be the greatest artist in the world. They know how to press, they will know, or might know, how to press our emotional buttons better than any pianist or any TV producer uh, or any painter. And, you know, that's, that's an accelerating thought and an extremely frightening thought at the same time. Well, as you write in the book, that this algorithm will know how to push our buttons better than our mothers do. Um, <laughs> which, I had to chuckle at that. Um, but the other thing you write in terms of art, it's not so much that the computer or the robot or the algorithm has to be the next Tchaikovsky um, or, or you know, the next genius. That, that algorithm just has to be as good as Britney Spears. Yes, for starters, yes. <laughs> you know, I, there is a lot of, whenever people talk about AI, um, very often they make the mistake of overrating what AI can do today and what AI could do in 20 years or 50 years. But what balances it is that they also overrate what humans can do. Um, people say, well, yes, Google is good, but it will never be perfect. It will make mistakes. Yeah, right, but humans make mistakes all the time also. If we move from out, let's say, to, 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 to questions like what to study in university, or whom to date, or whom to marry. And we'll try to look a couple of decades to the future, and maybe an algorithm, we will turn to an algorithm to decide for us what to study in university, or whom to marry. And when you talk about this, people will say, yes, but the algorithm will make mistakes. 
There will be things it cannot predict. There will be things it doesn't know about us. There will be all kinds of mistakes. That's definitely true. But for authority to shift to the algorithms, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better on average than humans. And humans make sometimes terrible mistakes in the most important decisions in life. So this is, this is the real bar. In out, it means it's, it doesn't have to be Tchaikovsky. It can start by being Justin Bieber or Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have two stories um, talking about algorithms and AI that um, were particularly fascinating. One involves Google Maps and this idea of people handing over to AI and the algorithms decisions mm -hmm. and how we've gone from being able to uh, drive and look at maps and follow directions to just saying, hey, Google, take me to sixth and I. And then within a matter of time, we've forgotten how to do anything without this algorithm or without asking Google for, for help. That's a problem, isn't it? it it's not necessarily a problem. It, it, again, it, it often does a better job. Um, and when it comes you know, to navigating the city and getting away from traffic jams and so forth, so yeah, it's a good idea to follow the recommendations of Google. It becomes frightening when you realize that the same basic dynamics and mechanisms that makes Google Maps better than our own spatial instincts might, in the not-too-distant future, make it better also in deciding things like what to study or whom to marry or whom to vote for in the elections. And this raises you know, very, some very deep philosophical and spiritual questions about human life. What is human life all about? If you look at most of history, then both art and religion told people that life is like a journey in which you have to make important decisions. Life is a drama of decision-making. Whether it's in religion, you have to make these important decisions, uh, and if you get the answer wrong, you go to hell for the rest of eternity. <laughs> and also in art, you know, like almost every big or small uh, uh, novel or movie or theater play, whether it's Shakespeare or Jane Austen or the latest Hollywood blockbuster, it's often just a drama of decision-making. You have to choose. Do I kill King Claudius or not? Do I uh, uh, betray my husband or not? Do I marry X or do I marry Y? And how does life look like when in every such situation you just take out the device, you don't even have to take out the device, and you have Hamlet saying, okay, Siri, what should I do? <laughs> okay, Alexa, what do you recommend? And Hamlet could have a much more convenient life, but what kind of life is it mm -hmm. when all these big decisions, and even small decisions, are not made by us? So we become these kinds of ultimate consumers, perhaps, and everything is arranged to our comfort, but what exactly is the meaning of that kind of life? The, the, the second story involves uh, alpha, alpha Zero. And um, this gets to just how quickly computers, AI, algorithms are quick. The machines are, 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 are way more advanced than we, I think, the layperson gives them credit for. Quickly tell the story of, of AlphaZero. Well, you know, it's, it's very old news that computers can defeat humans in chess. Uh, it's been 20 years, I think, since Deep Blue defeated Kasparov. But uh, uh, the latest sensation is, involves a game between two computer programs. Uh, a new program, just, just out there, just a baby, a tiny baby, managed to defeat the previous computer chess master. And the amazing thing about the, the, the baby program is that except for the basic rules of the game of chess, Nobody taught it anything. 
With Deep Blue and, and other chess, computer chess prodigies, you had human engineers uh, teaching the computers, the, the, the software, a lot of things besides. I mean, all the accumulated wisdom of hundreds of years of human chess players went into it. With AlphaZero, nothing went into it. It just played against itself. Um, and within an amazing short time of just four hours, it became better than the previous computer world champion, which was much, much better than any, any human being. So that was Stockfish, the Stockfish 8 yeah, program. Th this was the, the previous champion. Right. Th this happened on December 7th, 2017. So this was just almost uh, less than a year ago. Four hours, this computer was able to teach itself chess and then beat the reigning, the reigning champion. Mm -hmm. And if I have it right, if I can read my notes here, it won all of... It won most of the, the matches and then had a draw. Yeah, it had, it, they played like 100 matches. It's very right. quick with computers. And I think it won something like 25 or 28 or something and had draws all the, in all, all the rest of them and not, didn't lose a, a single one. And you know, chess is not like the world. It's much, much simpler. But in more and more fields, um, computers are going to outperform humans and will not even need humans to teach them uh, the, the basic skills and the basic tricks. They can teach themselves more and more things. So you spend a, a lot of time in the book. Uh, I've divided your, your book into three sections. The, all of this that we're talking about, AI, robots, algorithms, artificial intelligence. Um, and then the second part is like, who are we? And so if we have a situation where computers and algorithms are going to know more about us than we do, and we end up spending a whole lot of time just handing off decisions to this algorithm, then answer the question, who are we in that case? Um, we don't really know. And again, this becomes very dangerous when somebody else knows. But who are we, both on the individual level and on the collective level? You know, it's, again, one of the most basic philosophical and spiritual questions that confronted humankind for thousands of years. But like many other philosophical questions, they now become urgent questions, very practical questions. Now, for thousands of years, the basic answer was given in the format of a story. When people ask, who am I? What is the meaning of life? In almost all cases, they expect the answer to be a story. They expect to hear a story about the universe, which gives them, as a group, or me, as an individual, some role to play. And this is who I am. This is how I understand who I am. To the best of our knowledge, all these stories were fictions invented by human beings. Not a single one of them was true. But it didn't, I mean, it's not that it didn't matter very much, it mattered a lot. But to be effective, a story doesn't need to be true. It just needs to convince people. And some of the most, uh, and, and it, it's not that the more true a story is, the more convincing it is. There is often very little connection between the level of truthfulness of a story and uh, its level of effectiveness, of how convincing it is. In fact, you can say that truth and power can go together only so far. Mm -hmm. At one point or another, they will have to split, to go in different directions. If you really want to know the truth, at some point, you will have to give up power. And if you really want to gain power, at some point you will have to give up truth because it's, it's almost impossible to unite large number of people mm -hmm. 
without telling them some fictional story. And it's impossible, at least so far, to have a lot of power unless you manage to unite a lot of people around you. Can you expand on that and talk more about what you write about? And that is the, the difference between tribalism mm -hmm. and nationalism. Yeah. Well, we hear a lot of times this day that nationalism is part of human nature. It's in our genes, it's in our DNA, therefore it, it's natural, it's eternal, we'll never be able to go beyond it, and, and so forth and so on. And this is complete nonsense. <laughs> Nationalism is one of the least natural things for Homo sapiens. Uh, Homo sapiens, like other human species, we are definitely a social animal. And uh, sociability and loyalty to a group is definitely in our nature, in our genes, in our DNA. But for hundreds of thousands of years, Homo sapiens and its other hominid ancestors, they lived in very small groups. The chief characteristic of these groups was that they were intimate communities in which everybody knew everybody else. And this is what comes naturally to human beings to be loyal to a small group of a couple of dozen people who you actually know. Your family, maybe your uh, family business, maybe an infantry company in the army, maybe a small football club, something like that. This comes very natural to us. But nationalism is nothing like it. The essence of nationalism is the ability to make millions of complete strangers who never met each other and will never meet each other and don't know anything about each other as individuals, nevertheless feel part of the same group, feel that all these other strangers, they are somehow my brothers and sisters and, and, and friends and so forth, and care about them deeply, and even be willing to sacrifice uh, my life for them. I'm not saying there is necessarily anything wrong with it. Nat na nationalism has done a lot of good to humankind, a lot of bad also, but also a lot of good. It's, it's, uh, you couldn't have functioning large-scale societies uh, without being able to go beyond the small tribe. But it's definitely not natural for humans to have these kinds of loyalties to millions of strangers. This developed only in the last few thousand years, which is yesterday morning in evolutionary terms. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the key question to, to, to remind ourselves is, do I know these people? Like, I come from a relatively small country, Israel. We have about 8 million citizens. I don't know 99.99% .99 of them. I don't know these people. Mm -hmm. If you think about a place like the United States, you have what, like 300 million citizens? Yeah, I think we're about 350 by now, right? 350. 350. You don't know these people. What do you care about them? <laughs> but you do, at least many people do. And this is kind of the miracle of nationalism. And uh, as I said, nationalism is not necessarily bad. It's the foundation for most of the effective societies today on Earth. It makes you care enough to pay taxes that somebody else you never met will have healthcare and education. It, of course, has a downside that you care only about this segment of humanity, and in some situations you're willing to kill and exterminate other people you don't know equally, just because they don't belong to the group of strangers that you feel loyal to. But I would say that uh, as we look to the future and, and the need to develop stronger, stronger global cooperation to confront the big problems of the 21st century, I would say that you know, if we manage to get people, to get homo sapiens from being loyal to a hundred people you know, to being loyal to a hundred million strangers, that's a very, very long road to cover. And we covered it. Now the distance from being loyal to a hundred million strangers to eight billion strangers, that's a very short road in comparison. Alberto Ibarguen is a mentor of mine, longtime friend, and he's also the president of the Knight Foundation. And he's a fan of yours, and he's all about the First Amendment, and he is the first person who turned me on to the fact that we need to be 
thinking about these issues about social media and algorithms and, um, and what it means for the First Amendment. So I shot Alberto an email asking him, I'm sure you know Yuval Harari, do you have any questions that I can ask him? And what you were just talking about hits on a question that um, he had me, uh, wants me to ask you. Um, he says, in an era of worldwide media, of instant reach and virtual communities that defy geography or real space, real space intimacy, are we not growing up to live our lives in cyberspace? Do we not consider our online relationship as real as the physical ones? Do we not find satisfaction, support, and convenience online as in fact? If your answer is even a tiny bit yes, it's a tiny bit yes. A tiny bit yes. Okay, great. Even, even more than tiny. Okay, good, because this is great, because this is the, the question. And I think it has to be, he said. Then why do you not think that nationalism is the logical extension of tribalism? Well, just because of what I said, that tribalism, at least in the original sense, uh, of, of, in the evolutionary sense, the defining characteristic of the natural unit for humans is people you actually know. Whereas the defining characteristic of nations is people you don't know. You imagine you know them. They are all my brothers and sisters. But you know, I can name my two sisters. I can't <laughs> name the other eight million brothers and sisters that I have in the Israeli nation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Talk about religion. You you spend an entire chapter on role, yeah. Yeah, well, yes, of course we have to talk about religion. But you spend a lot of time in in your book. Uh, you have an entire chapter on religion, and you 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 hammer away at Judaism, mm -hmm. also Christianity, um, but Judaism because as you write, that's what you know, and the best thing you can you can criticize because mm -hmm. that's what you you know. I should, I should find, I'm gonna, fi I'm gonna well, find I, this, but you, just about you, 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 say, you, you say things in order to make us understand that, you know, we shouldn't be so self-centered. Yeah, I mean, I, I hammer Judaism for, for just because this is like my tribe, my group, so it's more polite to criticize your own people than to go about <laughs> the Japanese or the Brazilians or whatever. But this is a characteristic of all human groups. Everybody thinks they are the center of the world. Everybody thinks that uh, history revol revolves around them. That without them, the whole of humankind will be living in some dark ignorance and, and, and chaos and, and whatever. And you go to the Chinese, or you go to the Russians, or you go to the Jews, or you go to the Greeks, or the Egyptians, we all tell you the same story. It's all about us. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous when you hear it from the others, but it's so convincing when you hear it like, from, yeah, these, these Indians, what do they know? But we, yes, we are, we are the center of the world. And I, I just gave an example in, in, in one book of how, you know, and maybe this is also relevant to, to, to the United States, because you often hear about this Judeo-Christian tradition. And... You need to remember a few things about the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, tradition. First of all, it didn't invent morality. Lots of people go around with this ridiculous idea that all of morality comes from the Bible and the Ten Commandments, and thank God it doesn't. <laughs> because we would look in a very bad shape if this was the source of all morality in the world. You know, uh, the Bible was written uh, between 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago. Humans had moral codes and moral behaviors thousands and thousands of years before that. Other apes, other social animals have morality. The Chinese and the Indians and the Aborigines in, in Australia, they had ethical codes and ethical uh, behavior far superior in many respects to the Judeo-Christian religion without knowing anything about Jesus or about Moses. Um, what does characterize uh, much of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, and, and here uh, specifically it's more the Christians who bear the cross, they are the most intolerant, they have been the most intolerant uh, tradition probably in, in human history. Um, the 
if you compare, say, the Roman Empire before it became Christian and the Roman Empire after it became Christian, it's a completely different world. The Roman Empire before it became Christian was a bit like California today. You know, like a supermarket of so many gurus and traditions and try this and try that. And then Christianity comes and the party is over. Everything else is forbidden except Christian. And then they start killing, and you, know, you have all this, you go to a church, you have all, in, in many churches at least, you have all these images on, on the wall of martyrs. You have these wicked Roman soldiers uh, torturing Christian martyrs in all kinds of imaginative ways. Actually, in 300 years of persecutions, the, Ro the pagan Romans killed far fewer Christians than the number of Christians killed by other Christians in any one of numerous religious wars between the adherents of the religion of love. Um, so just because they just didn't understand the right interpretation for God's love, we must burn these people. You know? <laughs> so there is a lot, I, I think there is a lot for the followers of every tradition and every culture to be humble about and not to go about with this uh, um, feeling that all the world owes us this big debt because without us, everybody would be living in darkness and ignorance. And, and in fact, I, I misspoke. Everything that you just said was not in the religion chapter, it's in the humility chapter. <laughs> um, you know, there was something else uh, on this, this um, on religion and the idea about stories. When you were talking about, everybody tells stories. The nation tells stories. Religions tell stories that actually um, you have something in here about, it's basically like the original fake news. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that. Yes. Um, well, it's in, a bit impolite, but you know, even religious people will usually agree that all religions, except one, are fake news. <laughs> Which one? Ours, of course. I mean, you go to a Jew, he will say, yes, Judaism is the truth. But Christianity, you know, all these news that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus was raised from the dead, you know, this is fake news. And then you go to the Christian, they will say, no, 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 this is the truth. But the Muslims, they are selling you fake news. All this story that Muhammad made the, met the archangel Gabriel and that the Quran is the word of God, this is all fake news. And then you go to the Muslims, they will say the same thing about the Hindus and, and, and so forth and so on. Fake news, is, there is definitely nothing new about it. Uh, if people think that fake news is a result of Facebook or Twitter or whatever, well, I'm a medievalist. By, by originally, before I wrote about cyborgs and AI and all that, I was a specialist in the Middle Ages. So let's go back to the Middle Ages. You go back to a small town a thousand years ago in England or Germany or whatever, and there is no Facebook. There is no Twitter, there is no social media, but you have the, the, the town's gossip. And he comes to you and he tells you, you know, you know this old woman who lives alone by the edge of the forest? I just saw her flying on a broomstick. And within an hour, you would have a raging mob with pitchforks and torches ready to burn this old woman to death. And some other day he will come and say, I just heard from somebody very reliable that the local <laughs> Jewish community has kidnapped and sacrificed a small Christian boy in order to bake matzos for, for Passover. And again, within a very short period, you would have all these people ready to kill every Jew in town. And you don't need social media for that. And with that story you just told, that's an, a real story. That happened, what, 1066? That happened so many times. <laughs> well, <laughs> touche. <laughs> but what I mean is, in, you specifically wrote about this um, oh, yeah, little yeah, Christian yeah. boy yeah. who he was found dead in a well, and the rumor went out mm -hmm. that it, it was a, a Jew who did it, and 
thousands of people came from everywhere to kill thousands of or hundreds of Jews that were in this particular town. I remember, yeah, it's in England in like 1066. I think later it's in the, it's called the blood libel, yeah. and it it began one of the some of the first were in England in the late 12th and, and, and early 13th century. But then it was such a good story that it spread around. And you have such stories popping up in France and Germany and later on in, in, in Russia and even the Middle East. The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives and perhaps one day yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. The last part of the book, the third, is the, the who am I? And you have a line in, in the book about um, if you ask someone, you know, who, who am I, you're going to get a story. Basically, you shouldn't, trust, you shouldn't trust that person. Talk more about that. Well, our mind is a machine for generating stories. And we have been hearing these stories throughout our lives. It's like a constant commentator in the head that, for some reason, we trust. And it's the, the biggest story it tells us is our story, the story of our life. And even when it has very little to do with the actual reality of our life, we, we tend to believe it. And one of the most shocking experiences you can do uh, is to just drop everything else you do and just spend some time with the commentator in your head and get to know it, him, her better. And I guarantee it will be a shocking experience. Well, you meditate two hours, two hours a day, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've read. And I could have sworn I read in, in, in your book that you're supposed to just completely let go, not even listen to, to the person in your head and just completely, how do you, I was trying to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, 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 I was not successful. Very good, it, it means you really meditated. No, well, I mean, I wasn't able to stop talking to the little person in my head. How, how do you, let me start again. <laughs> Because you say to completely empty your mind. No, no, no. Definitely no, don't. Not. Just observe what happens. I mean, the mind does its own thing. You don't try to shut it up. You don't try to struggle against it. You just, observe. for one thing, we, we all the time, throughout our life, we always try to do something. <clears throat> Even when we go inside ourselves, we almost always do it to do something. We don't like the way we are, we try to change it. We think we need to improve ourselves in somehow, so we need to work on ourselves. And this is now like second nature to us. But the idea is don't try to do anything. Just observe whatever happens. If what happens is that the, the commentator in your mind becomes crazy and start talking nonstop the whole day, that's what you have to observe. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's one of the most difficult things to do in life. And this is why we tend to run away uh, to the smartphone, to the television, to the computer, to a book, to something. The most difficult thing is just don't do anything. Just stay there and observe what happens. And you know, lots of people have this fantasy that I will go to some ashram or some cave and I will find time like a week or two weeks and just be with myself and I'll start observing my inner reality and I will discover what an amazing person I am and I will discover all these inner strengths and all these (laughs) unfulfilled dreams that I now need to go and usually it's a 
completely different experience. So, well, then what was the experience for you when you went on, I think it was a, was it a month long? You write about it in the book. Yeah, my first, my first meditation retreat was, was 10 days long when right, I was days. doing my PhD in Oxford. I went and, and, and tried meditation. And I was absolutely shocked that I was 24 at the time. It's the first time I really actually tried to, to, to observe myself seriously. I mean, not to listen to the... When people try to observe themselves, they often just listen to the commentator, to the storyteller in the head. And not that. Just let go of everything. Just observe what happens. I mean, the first exercise the teacher, S.N. Goenka, gave was don't do anything, just sit there and know when the breath is coming in and when your breath is going out of the nostrils. It's like the simplest thing in the world. You don't have to control the breath. You don't have to breathe strongly or weakly or anything. Just you close your eyes, bring your, all your attention to the breath, and just know when it comes in, oh yeah, now it comes in. When it goes out, okay, now it goes out. That's it. Sounds very easy. I couldn't do it for more than five seconds or ten seconds without running away to some story, some fantasy, some memory, some worry. And what shocked me, in the, the first night I, I, I began this, is that I realized I know almost nothing about my mind. I have absolutely no control over what's going on there. And um, yes, I've been listening to the storyteller in my mind all my life, but it's like a screen that hides the, 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 the entire inner reality uh, behind it. And um, trying to look beyond that screen is maybe the most difficult and also most important thing that I think a human being can do in life. And have you succeeded in seeing beyond the screen? A little bit. From so, time th to so time. this is something that even after those 10 days, and even right now, you are in your two hours of meditation, you are still trying to get beyond the screen. Um, in a way, yes. I mean, it's not, you don't become perfect, but really, you do get to know yourself a bit better. Uh, it, it's not that the thoughts stop or the stories stop, but you have a much better understanding of what or who you actually are. And in most cases, you realize it's a far, far more complicated reality than, than we tend to imagine. The, the basic tendency is just to identify with whatever thought or desire just pops up in the mind. Like a thought pops up and you feel, hey, this is me. I chose to have this thought now. And when you realize, no, I didn't choose to have this thought, then the next question is, where did it come from? And this, in a way, brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, uh, to AI and to the algorithms that try to get us to know us better. That if you just identify with the thoughts and desires that pop out in your, in your mind, then you know almost nothing about yourself, and you are basically the easiest person in the world to manipulate. And it's now more important than ever before in history to make the effort to get to know ourselves better because of the competition. You know, when Buddha went around recommending to people, or when Socrates and, and Jesus went around recommending to people, know yourself a bit better 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. If people didn't listen, they were still um, a black box to the rest of humanity. They couldn't be deciphered. There wasn't the technology. They didn't have competition. But now there is very serious competition. Uh, there are lots of corporations and governments that are at this moment busy trying to hack us. And the only way to stay in the game is to get to know ourselves better. The moment they know you better than you know yourself, then they can play on you, on your emotional system, on your biochemical system, and you will never know because you will just identify with whatever noise they produce when they press this button or that button. And that gets to the one big thing that you write in the book that I think will blow a lot of people's minds is we are the product. It's not that you know, they're 
advertising to us and we're going to go buy things. Like, no, 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 no. The data that we're giving for all of these things, we are the ones that are being sold to other corporations um, in this crazy new world that we are going to be in. There are lots of people lined up. Thank you very much for, for your patience. And I am going to start here. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, really eloquent. Um, you spoke about how taking us from 100 million to 8 billion is simple compared to where we started from. Compared, yes. Compared. <laughs> At the moment, it looks like we're not like we're coming together globally, mm. but much more like we're fragmenting. That yes. progress made in the 20th century is regularly being undone before our eyes. So do you have a, a view or a thought or a prescription on what it takes to bring that fragmentation to a close? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> he spends a lot of time I, saying no. <laughs> like chapter two, chapter three. I, I, don't, I don't know. No, you know it, it's one of the most difficult questions in the world. I know that we should. I know that it would be good for us, but I also know that people very often don't do what's good for them. So I would say that the three biggest problems humanity now faces are nuclear war, climate change, and technological disruption. Even if we somehow manage to prevent nuclear war and climate change, AI and biotechnology are still going to completely disrupt the job market, the political system, and our own bodies and minds. And the only way to, uh, uh, to deal with this challenge is through global cooperation, because you cannot have a national solution to climate change, and you cannot regulate something like artificial intelligence on a national basis. If you ban some dangerous development in the United States, but the Chinese or the Russians are doing it, then very soon the Americans will be tempted to break their own ban because they wouldn't like to stay behind. So we need this global cooperation. Um, and one thing at least that I try to do is to tell people about it. That look, uh, nationalism was all good and well perhaps in the 19th and 20th century, but it's just not good enough to deal with the problems of the 21st century. You cannot deal with them on the national basis. Uh, whether it will be enough to convince people, I don't know. Question here. Thank you very much. Uh, I've read Sapiens. I loved it. I tried reading Homo Deus and then I misplaced it. But you, <laughs> you have a really great way of really expanding our minds and blowing our minds. So thank you for coming here and speaking. And my question was actually about that process of writing. Uh, what was it like? for your first book to be such a massive success and be so popular? And what led you to write your uh, subsequent books? And are you now a writer? Is that what you're going to be doing with your time? Thank um, you. Well, uh, about the success of the first book, it, it was a very hard work, not just of me, but of an entire team, just like it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a, a village or a team uh, to, to make a book successful. I know only how to write. But that's a long way from actually having a successful book uh, because there are so many very good books out there that nobody heard about. So I also had a lot of help from my husband, who is the, like, the, the PR genius behind uh, all the books, and also from our publishers and from our in entire team. And this is something I think that anybody who, who, who is working on a book should, should also realize that yes, without a good book it won't work, but just having a good book is also uh, uh, not enough. And um, I didn't have any plans on, on writing the first book or the second or the third. They just kind of wrote themselves. Um, I'm, I'm a bit, almost can say afraid of defining myself as a writer or an author because I don't want the responsibility of writing another book. You're next. In Thank a you. world full of failed stories, and I think the, the need for stories is also basically man's need for meaning or explanation of why we're here in this mm -hmm. universe. Um, I'm curious as to how you personally find meaning in this world full of fake news, fake stories, and if you, don't, if you do find meaning, why in these things? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, 
also why? Well, I, I try as much as possible to, to stay in touch with, with reality. I think one of the most difficult but most important thing for humans is to know to tell the difference between these fictional stories, which are often necessary, we need them to have a functioning society. Um, even something like money is just a story we invented. It has no objective value, no objective reality. It works only as long as enough people believe in the great stories that people like the chairperson of the, General, of the Federal Reserve tell us. And uh, it's so in, we need these stories, but we also need the ability to tell the difference between what is a story invented by humans and what is reality. And I would say that the best test I know is the test of suffering. Suffering? If, suffering. If, you, well, if you need to know whether an entity is real or whether it's uh, fiction, ask whether it can suffer. A nation cannot suffer. Even if a nation loses a war, um, it doesn't suffer, it has no mind, it has no nervous system, it has no uh, consciousness, it doesn't feel pain or sad or anything. It's a metaphor. When people say the nation has suffered, haven't the Jewish people suffered enough? No, they haven't suffered at all. <laughs> the individuals suffer. But a people cannot suffer. You don't have a people mind or a people consciousness. Um, and similarly, animals suffer. A cow can suffer far more than the whole of the United States because a cow has a mind, but the United States doesn't have a mind. And this is not a political commentary. It's just <laughs> a, a simple I, I'm with you. scientific I, I'm, I'm still, fact. I'm still with you. Isn't that like a genocide, though, when hmm? the whole people suffer? So you have many individuals who suffer. Uh, suffering... You need to have a mind, you need to have consciousness, you need the ability to feel pain or to feel sad to suffer. And this is something that collectives, that nation... I mean, I can certainly suffer when my nation loses a war, both because of the physical consequences and because I identify with my nation. Even when it loses a football game, I can suffer. Like I watch the game on, like on, 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 the, on the television and I lose the game and I suffer. The suffering, you know, I, I feel unpleasant sensations in my stomach. I feel unpleasant sensations in, in, my, in my chest. This is what happens. Now, a nation doesn't have stomach or chest. doesn't feel anything. So this is something which is very good for us to remember as we try to make sense of the world. He really goes into it in the book. It'll, it, read, read the book. <laughs> Next question here. Hi, I have two short questions, so you Great. can answer them quickly. Um, first, do you think there's any hope for algorithms that you control yourself? Uh, there are yeah. new technological developments for that, where I'll control my own algorithm, and also this idea of blockchain democratized control what do you think of mm -hmm. those? Is that possible? Great. So Thank yes, you. definitely. Um, and technology can be used in many different ways. At present, much of this new AI technology is used to monitor people, to monitor individuals in the service of corporations and governments and so forth. But it can be the reverse. The AI can serve me and not the corporation or the, gov or the government. To take a simple example, there are all these organizations trying to hack my brain in order to sell me things that they want. Uh, just as I have an antivirus for my computer, we could develop an, an antivirus for the brain. The AI, which serves you, gets to know your own weaknesses by following you and monitoring you. And if it knows that you have a particular weakness, you fear a particular uh, uh, a group of people, so you are susceptible to this kind of fake news, then the AI goes into action whenever this kind of story pops before you. Or it knows that you have, a, 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 you really like watching funny cat videos for hours and hours. <laughs> so when this first funny cat video tries to come up in, in YouTube, the AI comes to your rescue and prevents it uh -huh. from coming up. Okay. And you have this small screen saying, somebody just tried to hack your brain. And like a report. 
So you, we can definitely have it the other way around. That's a much brighter future, I think. And then quickly, your book, the second one, talks about that government at best is a custodian. <coughs> Sorry, governments at best are a custodian. They can't really keep up with all this information. And in parallel, there's all this AI and singularity. So I know you don't want to forecast the future, but how do you see this coming together if our government is dysfunctional, but meanwhile AI is powerful, the tech companies are powerful. What's your best guess of how that will evolve? Right. Thank you. I, I, I don't know. I mean, again, it depends. But you in, must have a best guess. In different parts of the world. <laughs> in, in, di in different parts of the world we have a very different uh, development at present in terms of the relative power of governments versus corporations. And in the end, it doesn't matter. Whoever controls these algorithms will be the real government. It doesn't matter if you call it a corporation or you call it a government by any other name. The real question is who controls all the data and all these powerful algorithms. Thank you for your questions. You're next. Thank you so much for a great talk. I wanted to connect two separate strand, uh, strands of thought that you discussed today. One was the trade-off between truth and power, as you called it. And as you seek one, you have to sacrifice the other. And the other your question about who are we will become extremely important in the future. So isn't that a source of power, trying to seek the truth about who you are? And isn't history full of uh, you know, characters like Jesus or Buddha or Dalai Lama? Yeah, yeah I mean, when people seek the truth about who they are, this opens an opportunity for somebody to gain power over them by telling them a very convincing story which claims to explain who they are. And if they believe the story, then that person or that movement or that party now has a lot of power over them. And uh, this usually involves deviating from the truth. If you really tell people the truth about themselves, they are unlikely to follow you. <laughs> we have time for two more questions. Okay. Okay. One and two. <laughs> Quickly then. Okay. I want to talk to you about artistic inspiration. Quickly. Quickly. So, <laughs> quickly. Um, algorithms and computers can only recycle and combine known information in a linear universe, in a linear perspective. Whereas, at least I believe, or I feel, that um, artistic inspiration, when a human gets out of their way, unlike a machine, because machines cannot get out of their way, but a human gets out of their way and listens to the muse from what may be an alternate universe or a spherical experience, mm -hmm. you know, that's where, in my opinion anyway, real art and real music comes from. Okay. So your oh, question. Okay, so wait, hold on. Wait, wait. Do you feel, do question. you feel that uh, inspiration, human inspiration, is in danger of extinction. Well, oh, that's a great question. Uh, one, <laughs> one big question is how much of art is really inspiration and how much of art already is human art, just recycling? And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about the answer to this question, but a large percentage is recycling. And every human work of art, oh, almost, every, ev almost every work, is based on some kind of recycling. Um, to give, I don't know, the first example that comes to my mind, I really like Harry Potter, so, so it's, it, 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 it's fine, but I was very disappointed at the end of Harry Potter because I felt, hey, I've read it somewhere. You know, at the end of Harry Potter, he dies, and then he comes back to life. Yeah, and I read it somewhere before. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is recycling. It's very, very difficult to come up with something completely original. And there is a lot, when, whenever you talk about AI and, and, and art, you get these questions. And not just about creation, but also about the way that we consume art. That, okay, if I, now, if I now have an algorithm 
that chooses my music for me, then I will be kind of imprisoned inside an echo chamber of my previous choices. And I will never be able to break out of it and, and, and so forth. But this is, this is not true. Actually, it's much easier to break out of the algorithmic prison than of the prison of your own brain. Because the only thing you need to, get out, to do to get out of the algorithmic prison is just tell the algorithm, surprise me. Which is, it can do it much better than your own brain. You can say to the algorithm that chooses your music, I want 5% serendipity. And you are guaranteed to get 5% serendipity in the choice of, no of music. inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> and the final question to you, sir. Hi, sorry, it was a two-pronged question, but I'm going to cut out the first one. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Short. Short. <laughs> okay. So you talk about uh, na uh, nation states being not a great model for co cooperation per se, especially in the face of the disruptions we are and will face in terms of climate change and AI and stuff. Until at least a few years ago, there was an idea that European Union, a model like that, it was an incredible model, right? Mm -hmm. That countries which had been at war for each other for 300 years coming together to decide to work. And it functioned fairly well for a period at least. And especially in political science, a lot of people thought that would be the step forward, supranational organizations mm -hmm. uh, who could come together and work on cooperating like that. And although the dream has taken a bit of a stumble right now, and I'm not saying you should be prescriptive about this, but what do you speculate is the way forward. Do you think this path will remain uh, where we keep trying to go to, into the supranational uh, federation style mm -hmm. um, view of the world? Or will there be something completely different? Again, I, I don't know. I can tell. Uh, what I can say, and I repeat it quite often, is that to deal with our main problems, we need greater global cooperation. I don't know whether we'll actually do it or not. Humans have this tendency to do things against their interest. Um, so in, in that sense, just because it's the right thing to do doesn't guarantee that it will be done. And... Um, would you say it's another uh, uh, That I will, I will say that when we talk about global cooperation, it should be very obvious we are not talking about a global government. We are not talking about a single empire that rules everybody. We are not talking about abolishing all cultures, all languages, all local cuisines, and everybody becoming just this homogeneous gray goo. No, the idea can be summarized in, like, in, in, in the mode of, of harmony without uniformity. Real harmony doesn't mean that everybody are the same. If, let's go back to out, to have uh, a, a, an orchestra, it's not like you have just all identical tools, musical tools playing exactly the same note. If you want to make soup, you need a few different ingredients. So real harmony is not about uh, uniformity. And it's not, and, and, and global cooperation does not mean abolishing all national and cultural differences. It means basically adding another layer of loyalty and of identity. Humans, in any case, Almost everybody has several layers of identity and of loyalty. I can be loyal to my family, to my uh, business, to my community, to my village, and to my country at the same time. We can add more items to the list. We can also add humanity and the planet to this list. Of course, when you have several identities, several loyalties, they sometimes collide. And then it's difficult to know what to do. Sometimes you prefer the interests of your family over the interests of the business. Sometimes you have to sacrifice the interests of the family for the business to survive. It's difficult. But, you know, life is difficult. Deal with it. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for your questions. I want to um, end with a, uh, a question of my own. Mm -hmm. And that is, in this now more than hour-long conversation, I'm, I'm safe to say we have barely scratched the surface of what you write about, what you discuss, the, 
the ethical questions that you raise in terms of self-driving cars and the algorithms involved in that, the philosophical questions, um, the moral questions. When the folks in this room finish reading, reading your book, what's the one thing you ultimately want them to come away with from your book? Just one. There are several, but um, just one. A clearer priority about what's happening now in the world. What are the really important questions we need to focus on? It's, it's not a book of answers. It's not a book of solutions. And also many of the questions that you, you ask me today, I don't know. But the really important thing is to focus on the important questions. Uh, we now live in a world in which censorship works not by blocking information, but by flooding us with enormous amounts of information, much of it irrelevant. And the biggest problem is how to stay focused and how to, to, to build a, 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 a good priorities in, 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 in the things that, that we tackle. So I hope that after reading the book, uh, people will have a clear idea of what are the most important discussions we should be having now and what can be left aside. Yuval Noah Harari, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Homan. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.